All right, Grovers, we're in week 14 of our series in the book of Acts called Our Hearts Burn Within, and for the last three weeks, we have been looking at the courage and the heroism of the early church. Courage, we have been saying, is defined as this. It's to hold to convictions of truth in the face of danger and opposition. Courage is to hold on to convictions of truth in the face of danger and opposition. But heroism is different. Heroism, you need to have the right truth, and you have to be convicted of that right truth. So Hitler is courageous, but he is not heroic because he has the wrong truth. And we've seen for the last couple weeks that Peter and John have this mantra that they live by every time they appear before this religious elite that want to destroy them. Here is what they always say. We must obey God and not men. Obey God and not men. What they are saying is we must find the highest truth, the highest form of goodness, the highest form of love and beauty and glory, and we must hold to it. We must be convicted of that. And if they do that, they will live heroic lives. And that's what their lives are on display to see as. Now, most likely, none of you will die for your faith. Most likely, none of you will die for the sake of love. Most likely, none of you will die for what is good and right and beautiful. However, if you have the willingness to die for what is good and beautiful and right and true, you will live today an abundant and fruitful life every single day. Because if you are so convicted of something that you are willing to die for it, and I would, I would say ask yourself today if that's true of you, if you're so willing and convicted of this highest truth of God and his beauty and his glory, and you're willing to die for it, that means you're willing to live for it. So every day, you live holding on to the highest truth, the highest glory, the highest good, and that will make you a courageous spouse. It will make you a heroic parent, a heroic friend, a heroic worker. That's what we're after today. And we're going to learn this from Stephen. We're going to meet Stephen today, and Stephen is the first Christian martyr. And his heroism resembles Christ's heroism, especially as Christ is being crucified. We see a lot of similarities in what they say at the end of their life. And what we find in Stephen is he has in him enough courage and heroism to set the embers of Christianity to ignite them into a movement. And I want to read to you the story of Stephen in the book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 15, and then we're going to jump all the way to the end of chapter 7, because Stephen is going to give a very long breakdown of the history of the rebellion of God's people. And so then we're going to read the end of what he says, and then what happens to this brave man. Acts 6, verses 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and 
of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then he gives this long speech about the rebellion of God's people. And then he addresses them like this. You stiff-necked, stubborn people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he Full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped up their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Wow, okay. I want to put you in Stephen's shoes. A few chapters back, news about a miracle A man who had been crippled from birth, now 40 years old, news about him dancing the streets of Jerusalem, spreads about the land. And it's beginning to draw a crowd, and Stephen is likely in this crowd. And as Stephen steps up to listen, Peter steps forward as the movement, the leader move, the movement of this, the leader of this movement, and he addresses the crowd, and he says, This miracle that you have witnessed, this miracle that has drawn you here. It is, it is only a glimmer, it's only a shadow, it's only a clue of the pulsating power of the resurrection of Jesus. And he continues to speak about the resurrection, and Stephen watches as then Peter is taken, and he's arrested, and he's put to trial by this group called the Sanhedrin, the same people who executed Christ. And he hears about the boldness of Peter as he appears before the Sanhedrin group. And then they let him go, and Peter returns. And they told Peter, do not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Peter goes and returns back to the same place where he was and continues to preach about the resurrection. He is then arrested again, tried again. This time he is beaten and then sent out. And at this point, the movement of Christianity is beginning to take root. And... Stephen now has joined the ranks of leaders and he's appointed one of seven who are to care for the poor 
the oppressed, those in need. And then he begins, by his hands it says, to perform signs and wonders. In other words, Stephen has now become the first person outside of the apostles to be performing these miracles. And as he's doing it, he begins to preach a sermon. And as he's preaching, this group of people come up and they begin debating him in Christianity. But they can't oppose him because his wisdom is too great. And then it tells us that he had grace and power. Grace and power. This is a rare combination. To be someone of grace in this context means there's a sweetness to him. There's a tenderness that he has. There's a love that he's carrying. Yet at the same time, there is a strength that is unmatched, not just in character, but in presence. And this is closely resembling Christ. I mean, we think about Christ as being both of those things. When someone is in need, when someone is brokenhearted, he always lifts them up by his love. But then we see the story where Jesus is about to be arrested by this battalion of soldiers, and he speaks words. When he speaks them, they fall to the ground. So he has both tenderness and strength, and Stephen resembles that closely. And because of his wisdom, they can't seem to get the better of him, so they have a new philosophy or plan. They are going to start a smear campaign about him. And as they do, news about Stephen reaches the Sanhedrin, who are just looking for a reason to take these Christians down. So there is a mob of people or something, officials come, and they take him, they seize him, and they throw him in this council among the Sanhedrin, the same people who executed Christ. Stephen knows what he's up against. And the accusers step forward and accuse him of, of saying, Christ has replaced the temple and replaced the law. They're twisting his words, but it's like a half-truth. And as they do this, the commotion like rises up, and everybody's looking at Stephen of how he's going to address the accusations. And when they look at him, his face is glowing like an angel. This is the glory of God shining off of his face. And as his face is glowing, he begins his speech about the rebellion of God's people, and he ends the speech like this. You stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious people. You have, you have persecuted every prophet, and you have killed many. And you have killed the Lord's anointed, the Son of God, come to die for you. You've killed him. You've murdered him. And when he says this, they start snarling at him like wolves, and they're grinding their teeth at him. And when this is happening, then it says he looks up, and he sees the heavens open, and he sees the Son of God standing. He says, look, behold, Jesus, he's standing. He's not seated, but he's standing at the right hand of God. And when he says this, they cry out, they stop up their ears, and they come rushing at him. They seize him, and they take him outside of the city gates, throw him to the ground, and there he's kneeling on the ground. And as he kneels, they begin throwing their cloaks, their, basically their fancy garments, at the feet of Saul, who would later become Paul and become a Christian. But in this moment, he is approving the death that is about to happen. And once they get their fancy clothes off, they start taking stones, and they pelt Stephen. And as they're pelting him and he's getting close to his last breath, he cries out with a loud voice, Don't 
hold this sin against them. And then it says he fell asleep, which is a way of saying, though he died a gruesome death, he was in peace throughout all of it. Now, one question we should ask is, how do we know this story? How does Luke, who tells the story, know this story? And many commentators say that Luke knows this story because of Saul, who would later become Paul, a Christian, who would hold this story deep, close to his heart, because Saul has got to be hearing in this moment, Stephen, pray for him. Father, forgive him. He does not know what he's doing. And that prayer would be answered in Paul. And it had to have a profound impact on his life. Now, I want to look at Stephen's heroism. And let me just define again for you courage. Courage is to hold to convictions of truth in the face of danger and opposition. Heroism is to have the right truth. So Stephen, why does he endure this? Because he could have walked away. He could have said, okay, fine. I'm not going to die for this. I'll still believe, but I'm going to walk away and stop doing what I've been doing. But he doesn't. He stands firm. And he doesn't do it in defiance, in pride, as if to say, I will not go down without a fight. That's not what he does at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He begins to pray for his murderers. As they're killing him, he's praying for him. This is not defiance. This is love for enemies. There's no other explanation than this being love for his enemies because of his prayer. He says, Father, don't hold this sin against them. And this is echoing the prayer of Christ on the cross. Do you know what Christ says on the cross? As he's being killed, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Most of us, we curse the people who speak ill of us. But Stephen is blessing his murderers. In the face of pain, in the face of suffering, in the face of trials, you get to know very quickly what you really believe. We might claim we believe something, but when pain comes our way, when suffering comes our way, it really gives you a test of what you really believe. Stephen has not just heard Jesus say, love your enemies. He's not just heard the mantra of Christianity that says, overcome evil with good. He's not just giving it an amen. He's living it out to its end. I've been through enough Bible studies and enough deep theological conversations to know that it's really easy to say that, yeah, that sounds good. That's a good way to live. But to actually live it, that's very different. That requires a conviction of truth in the face of danger and opposition. That requires courage. That requires heroism. When the, if this opportunity came, are you ready? When Stephen faces this, well, let me tell you this. I think we need more heroes in the church today. And let me prove this to you. The church today, it could be argued, has never been more divided. I mean, it gets nasty among church people, especially among theological pastors. It's heartbreaking. And 
God says, love your enemy, and we can't even love the people that Christ died for to make us his brother, make brothers and sisters, like together a family. And that should be a warning for us to hear. It's not that we shouldn't disagree. Disagreements are good. This helps refine us. This is like the friction that makes us find truth. But if we can't sit down with those who are our family in faith and have a conversation about what is true, right, good, and beautiful and not have unity among our diversity, then we're failing. And, and you, take outside of the, like the, the greater church world, there are people in your life who have wounded you. There are people who have broken you. There are people who have shamed you. There are people who have given you scars that you may have for the rest of your life. And you hate them for it. And there's a lot of reasons that you could make a case for you to hate them. But then Jesus presents another argument to you. Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart, you have murder in your heart. And what he's getting at is anger is like a kernel. And if you apply enough heat to that anger, that kernel, it pops into murder. In other words, it's the same thing. It's the same seed. Your environment, if it gets hot enough, well, if you have anger, then you're capable of murder, is what it's saying. Here, well, as I've been praying thinking through what needs to be said in the sermon, I think one thing that we should consider is that we ought to be taking our faith a bit more seriously. We ought to be taking Christianity a bit more seriously. Instead of us making excuses for why we aren't loving our friends and our neighbors and our family, we should probably even go deeper and ask why we aren't loving our enemies. Like, really come to terms. This is not just something that Jesus is suggesting. It's a command. Love your enemy. And you know what it is? The command is a test. It's a test you really believe what you're saying you believe. Because the premise of Christianity is that Christ came and died for us while we were his enemies. While we were sinners. While we were his enemies. That is when he died for us. Not when we were at our best, but when we hated him most. He comes and dies for us in order to make us into friends. What compelled Stephen? Stephen knows Christ died for him while he was an enemy. And you know what faith does? It produces more Christ-likeness in you. Like, it takes a long time, but you're changing. There is the ability in you, if you are a Christian, to love your enemy. And the test makes you come to terms, am I really a Christian? The degree that you love your enemies is the degree that you are able to understand that Christ died for you while you were his enemy. Faith produces Christ-likeness. The degree that you could forgive others is the degree that you actually understand that you have been forgiven. In other words, you have to receive something before you can give something. This is why Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. 
it means you've already been blessed with forgiveness. Because you've been blessed with forgiveness, you have the ability to forgive in you. And if you aren't forgiving, then you probably aren't really forgiven. It's not that it's not offered to you. You're knocking it away. Grace gives birth to grace. Love gives birth to love. It says he, we love because he first loved us. We have to receive this first and then we're able to give it. And then Christ says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And he's not only talking about his literal killers. He's talking about us. Because you know what happens on the cross? Your sins, they're placed upon him on the cross. So he's not just dying for you. He's dying because of you, because he's there to deal with sin. And so if he's holding your sin on the cross, he's not just dying for you. He's dying because of you. But he gladly does it. You see, here's what's going on. You aren't throwing stones at Christ on the cross. You're throwing something far worse. You're throwing your sins at him. But you better do it. It's why he came. He came for your sins to hold on to them, for you to cast them off of yourself and to throw them upon him. And then he holds on to them. And when the wrath of the Father over sin is poured out upon him and your sin is destroyed, you stand free from that sin. So you better throw it to him. That's why he came. Because you will either die holding on to your sins or Christ will die holding on to your sins. You've got to pick one. Stephen is picturing, I'm sure, as stones are being thrown at him, he's imagining his Savior who, who took his sins. Like Stephen is throwing his sins upon his Savior, and he's got to be picturing, and he's, and he's got to hear the words of Christ, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Like our sin, we keep doing it. And we don't really know what we're doing. Like, we don't know the terror and the agony that we are putting upon ourselves. He's saying they don't know what they're doing. And he's praying for us in that moment. And it fuels Stephen's forgiveness and it should fuel ours. And if you see him doing that, it will make you start dishing out forgiveness like a rich man is dishing out dollar bills. And if you aren't able to forgive, it might mean you aren't rich In forgiveness, you aren't rich in grace, and you aren't rich in mercy and love. And if you're saying, I have someone I need to forgive, and I just can't do it, here's what what the Bible would tell you to do. Make your calling and election sure. In other words, this is a test of faith. And how you respond will tell you if you are a Christian or not. Because if you cannot forgive, then that means there's not forgiveness in you to offer. So you're trying to figure out how to forgive, right? So you go to God. God, I'm having trouble forgiving. And here's God's advice to you. Die like Stephen. Die to yourself. Die to your pride. Die to you being misrepresented by someone. Die to you being misunderstood. Die to you from the wounds that you have. Die to all of it and then forgive. Not just for their sake, but for yours. Because it's good. 
Christianity is an invitation for you to come and die so you might live. It's an invitation to go through the cross to the resurrection, through sorrow into joy. Christianity is an invitation to throw down, to die to all earthly pleasures that you think will satisfy you, so you will go on into the eternal pleasures that are coming at you now, and you might enjoy the delight of them now in this moment. Every loss that you feel in obedience to what God has called you to do will lead to a greater gain. Stephen has obedience in the face of opposition, and it leads him to discover the wonders of his soul, of his heart, everything he's longed for. The heavens are opening up, and he's seeing everything he wants. You hear that? It's in the opposition that he experiences that. This is our second point, the path to seeing God. Love, in the face of opposition, produces visions of glory. Love, in the face of opposition, produces for you visions of glory. And it seems that the greater the difficulty, the greater the challenge, the greater the trial, if you are standing in obedience to God and living the way he's called you to live, the heavens open up wider and you see more and heaven is pierced and the opening opens up and you see all the glories that you have longed for all of your life. And it makes sense that this would happen because here's what's going on inside of you. You are faced with a challenge. How will you handle that challenge? Well, you're too weak, to be honest with you. You can't live the life that God has called you to live. You don't have the strength in you, so what do you do? You go and you, you ask God for mercy, but you ask him for strength. You're relying on him in your weakness. And when you rely on him, you're going to him. And then he opens up the heavens, gives you the strength to face whatever it is that is before you. So here's, here's the pattern. Here's what you do. You fight for love no matter the cost. And as you fight for love, even for your enemies, you say, God, have mercy on me and my weakness. I can't do this. And then he fills you with images of him and his glory and his love for you, and that compels you to live a courageous life for his glory and your good and your joy. That makes you heroic. Stephen is courageous for two reasons. Like, okay, so if you haven't heard anything, just listen to this. He's courageous for two reasons. This last point, for what he knows and for what he sees. He's courageous because of what he knows and what he sees. This is our last point, our standing Lord. First, here's what he knows. He knows two things. That Jesus does actually replace the temple. And he is the fulfillment of the law. So he replaces the temple. All right, what, is, what does that mean? Well, the temple is the place where God's glory dwells. It's where his presence is. So if you want to go experience God, where do you go? Well, you go to the temple because that's where God's presence is most concentrated. When Jesus comes on the scene, he says something greater than the temple is here. The only way that something could be greater than the temple is if the dwelling of God is more concentrated in that place. What he's saying is that in him, the full uh, glory and beauty and majesty of God dwells. 
but it's, he's covered in humility. And as this is true, it means he is the exact imprint of God. God himself come into our world to fight for us, to die for us, to rise for us. If somebody says to you, Christ, or if you're thinking Christ has never claimed divinity, it's right here. Right here. And more than that, so Jesus makes this claim, he rises from the grave, the disciples are so excited, and then he says, I have to depart, I have to leave you. And I'm going to go and I'm going to ascend to the right hand of my father, and I'm going to take my seat there on my throne, and there I will rule and reign, and this is good for you, because I'm going to send to you my Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, and he will dwell in you. That means the presence of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the fullness of God, in some crazy way somehow is dwelling within you. Now, if that just in and of itself doesn't make you courageous, I don't know what will. And that's the kind of thing that makes you stop wanting to to mess around with the same sins that Christ was crucified on the cross for. But it's the same thing that makes you say, wow, he loves me this much, and wow, he has been that, this merciful to me. And it's the it's kind of thing that makes you heroic. And then, and then the other thing Stephen knows is Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures and the law. All right. What he means by the fulfillment of the scriptures is that every word, every dot, every iota in the Bible, there's something kind of echo underneath it. There's some kind of thing, some some kind of hint and rumor that's pointing you to Christ. Like you open up your Bible to read it, everything in you, really what it's longing for is your Christ, your Savior, your King. If you don't know it, I'm telling you that's what it is. And you you can just enjoy that truth and enjoy Him in that. And also it says he's the fulfillment of the law. For him to be the fulfillment of the law means that everything that Stephen has done wrong, everything that you have done wrong, everything that I have done wrong, we deserve to be absolutely stoned to death for it and to be stoned by the wrath of God. But he comes and lives this perfect life. He lives perfectly as we were meant to live. And then, instead of receiving a reward for his perfect life, he receives the cross. He receives your sin. And then your reward by faith is he clothes you. Like while you're throwing your sin at him, he's throwing his righteousness at you. He's throwing his beauty at you, his perfection at you. And now you are clothed completely in the beauty and the majesty and the righteousness of Christ. It's over you. And it can't leave you. You can't take this coat off. It's yours forever and always. And that means when you wake up in the morning, the the love and the approval and the acceptance that God feels for his son, the admiration, just the deep love, it's clothing you, which means God sees you and he loves you the same. And then at the end of the day, after you've racked up all of these sins and the sun goes down and you lay your head on your pillow, 
you still are clothed in the glorious righteousness of Christ. And the father looks down at you and he is pleased because he sees by faith his son is covering you. Now, Stephen's conviction of that truth is confirmed for him when he looks up and he sees the heavens open up. And when he sees the heavens open up, he says, he's standing. My Savior is not sitting, but he is standing. And that is significant. Let me tell you about glory. Glory means a lot of things. And he's looking up and he's seeing the glory of God. But he's, he's entering into it as he's looking. And, and the way he's entering into it is this. Glory means a lot of things And it most definitely means one thing, that we enter into the approval of God. We enter into the admiration of God. We enter in, even if I might dare say, into fame with God. In other words, he looks at us and we're famous in his eyes. This is the deepest longing of your heart. Your fear is to be known and rejected. Your greatest desire and hope is to be known and loved. And that's exactly what Stephen sees. And when he sees it, an enemy of God who is now famous, loved, and admired in the eyes of the Father, he can love his enemies. He can pray for the man who is approving his death, Saul. And he can pray even with confidence that God will answer that prayer. And at the end of Paul's life, Saul turns into Paul, and Paul would become one of the greatest Christian leaders of the church, and he would become a martyr himself. And upon his death, I just got to imagine the, heavens, the gates of heaven open up, and he enters in, and he's greeted by Stephen. And when he's greeted by Stephen, he embraces Stephen. And there's tears of joy. It's the only kind of tears that there are in heaven. And as he's crying, he says, Stephen, thank you for your prayer. God has answered it. Even though I didn't want him to in that moment. But now I am so delighted that you prayed for me while I approved your murder. And Stephen says, I know. I've seen your life. Well done. Man, the, the joy that Paul must feel in that moment. Stephen was a hero to Paul. Christ, in a greater way, is a hero to you. Because on the cross, he feels the weight of your sin, your shame, your guilt. He feels the agony of it all. And he, he feels the pain of you throwing your sins upon him. But he's there to receive them. So it's all just an incredibly painful experience for him. He's feeling the weight of your sin upon him. He's feeling the, in a way that you're an enemy to him. And it's like it's breaking his heart that the one that he loves is throwing their sins upon him. Yet he's telling them to do it so he can carry their sin. And as he's carrying your sin, the father whom he so loved and cherished turns his back on him and then he lets all of his wrath down upon his firstborn son to destroy the sin that has haunted humanity since the beginning and now the power of sin is gone and the righteousness of Christ is left there on the cross 
and you walk up to the cross and you veil yourself in his perfection and his beauty and his love. And as you do that, you look up and you see the heavens opened up and you see the son of man, Jesus Christ, your hero and your savior. And he is standing for you. And he's standing to say this, the same thing that Stephen knew. I am yours and you are mine. That is the words that Christ says to you as you see him standing. Because you know, he's standing because he's an advocate. He's standing because he's a lawyer for you. He's standing because he is fighting for you. And he's looking over at his father and he's saying, Father, I prayed for him on the cross. I prayed for her on the cross. I paid their penalty. It's finished. It's done. And Stephen hears those words, and you hear those words. And as you hear them, peace, rest, and joy flow over you. But something else does too. Power to love even your enemy. That'll change you. And if if you take hold of that, I promise you, It will change the way that you treat people in your life. It will change your courage in this life. And you will become something altogether different than you once were. Let's pray. Father, we want to be willing now to have the boldness to stare death in the face persecution in the face that is brought on to us by being obedient to your calling upon us. We want to have that courage and heroism not for our sake alone and not just for your sake but also for the sake of the people in this world whom we have been called to love. And God, we got to believe that another movement of Christianity could like resonate and pulsate through our area. Because a small little church had people in it that rose up and were willing to live a full and abundant life, holding on to the highest truth, the highest good, the highest beauty, and were willing to live completely in line with you. All in. Help us to do that. Help us to live that way. We need your help, God. We can't do it. We're too weak to do it on our own. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media Grove Church PSL and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.